0: for me, when I started to really understand this relationship between our thoughts and our beliefs and how we feel was that I started to recognize that I did feel like or believe that I was begging people, asking people to give their hard-earned money to me when they didn't want to, right? That was like the underlying Mm -hmm. belief that I was somehow like guilting people into giving Mm -hmm. me their money when they didn't really want to. And, And so of course, if that is your belief, There is no way fundraising is ever going to feel good. Like if you hold that belief, it will never feel good. But for me, what really shifted was like, wow, inviting people to give to something meaningful and powerful and change oriented is such an offer and Mm. such an opportunity. Inform, inspire and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons.
1: Hi, this is Lindsay Simons, your host of Creating Community for Good podcast. My guest, Mallory Erickson today, is somebody I am so thrilled to introduce you to. We met through mutual friends through the We Are For Good podcast with Becky, John, and Julie, and so I'm deeply indebted to them and grateful to them. What really delighted me was that she and I had the opportunity to meet in person for dinner last night after we'd recorded this episode. So it's all thanks to the power of social media networking. And now Mallory and Dana Snyder, who was in the episode about virtual events, and I are all on a thread where we're swapping strategies and sharing laughs. And I'm so excited that this all came about during COVID. We're all living in a space of social distance and isolation, and it's been a tough year or more than that even. It's almost exactly a year since I started podcasting. And as I shared with my friend, Brad Black of EO, who was on the podcast months ago, and I recommend you listen to that again because I just heard it again. Although my audio quality is not great, his is, and my audio quality has improved. And we really had a fun conversation about what it means to do Business in a way that's philanthropic, that's different from a typical business strategist. So, we had dinner recently, and what I shared with him was creating community for good felt like the most extreme range of emotions, where I felt both pride and humiliation. I felt embarrassed by the imperfection of the podcast and how I delivered, the sound quality, what I said, how I asked questions, how I showed up. And then I felt Courageous and satisfied for having jumped off that cliff into something totally new and exciting. So it was really that range where I felt like I was most alive. And that's how I knew that I was doing something that was different for myself. I was forging a new pathway. And that's really an exhilarating experience for me. So if I can draw one more parallel, I love to travel. And like all of us having been limited during the COVID pandemic, what we're missing is that opportunity to have new experiences. What I want to share is that you can actually create new experiences or that same sense of awe and discovery and wonder, as well as deliberate focus and awareness to self and others through your own Experience of trying new things, whether that's at home or forging new relationships, getting on social media, trying art projects, becoming a runner, a writer, a reader, whatever is new and different, you can really create that sense of awe and wonder and new discovery, which is what helps us to feel a sense of delight and wonder in the world as humans. That is a bit of a tangent, but I wanted to share it because it's really a reflection of what I've experienced. And as one of my podcast role models, Jenna Kutcher, as she says, it's important to share that you're on a journey and share what you're learning over time so that it can be a shared discovery and provide insights to those who are paying attention and listening, whoever I'm offering this to and might have a curiosity about my journey. So going back to the dinner with Brad, he asked me, well, what does success look like to you with this podcast? And my answer was comfort and the discomfort or even better, self-acceptance and love in the imperfection and joyfulness that I'm able to create, offer, and share. So that self-reflection does relate to this topic of today's podcast. It's about shifting and expanding your mentality. This is geared towards fundraising specifically, but wisdom can be drawn from any of the industries that you may occupy. The goal Look for harmony in offerings rather than limiting yourself to a hierarchical ranking of inferiority. On today's episode of Creating Community for Good podcast, Mallory Erickson is a certified fundraising coach who's served over 50 fundraisers and organizations. She, like myself, believes in the importance of changing the narrative of nonprofits around money, engagement, and donor-slash-organization relationships. It is not about begging or chasing donors for money anymore. It's not about we have this great need and oh, wouldn't you help us? It's about instead providing people with an awesome opportunity to join a cause and fuel a movement to be the change that they hope to see in the world, to have an impact, even though it may not be their industry. Now, I know that it's much easier said than done. But what we talk about in this episode is not just philosophy, but there are hard and fast strategies that you can jot down and execute and deploy today. The fundraising world is filled with passion. And while it's a job, it's also a true life calling to work in this sector. Work and professional drive jumbled together. And more often than not, fundraisers, even the most experienced ones, go through roller coasters of emotions all the time. Will the potential donor get back to me? Did I get my message across? Are people even paying attention? Have I hit my metrics? Am I going to be evaluated on the experience with that person? Well, Mallory is an expert in talking about limiting beliefs and how to turn them into positive, constructive, and strategic journeys in this episode. She shares with us what she calls the gales, or the four main types of thoughts that limit our potential and interrupt our own growth in the fundraising sector. Now, this, again, is something that could be applied to any sector. So the four are gremlin assumptions, interpretations, and limiting beliefs. So tune in to listen more about those. How many assumptions do we make based on first impressions without really even having reliable facts or information? How many stories do we tell ourselves about skills and how much do we believe them to be true? How many times do we listen to our voice in our head that warns us about a catastrophic result? There's power in challenging what we accept as true. And that change is what we need personally and as a revolution for the nonprofit sector. Join this conversation with Mallory Erickson and me as we take a sneak peek into her mind-blowing strategies about both building your confidence as a fundraiser and about creating a more meaningful relationship with your donor. So a few of the takeaways include not only the gales that I mentioned already, but why she absolutely hated fundraising and what was her aha moment. We'll also talk about asset mapping. So how are you identifying what your donors want, what you have to offer and pairing them up? And then finally, what in the world is five and dive? Tune in to hear the rest. Thank you so much and keep listening. Shine on. Let's go.
0: I spent my life in the nonprofit sector. I, like so many people became kind of an accidental fundraiser, you know, by getting just promoted into a managing director role, came with fundraising, hated fundraising, hated it. Like if you had asked me when I was an executive director, my least favorite part of my job, I would have said that over and over and over again. The thing that really shifted my experience as a fundraiser was actually going through an executive coach certification program, which had nothing to do with my fundraising. Like from, and at the time, I wasn't thinking about it that way. But once I started to really understand the thoughts, the beliefs behind how I felt about fundraising, I was able to actually address those, change those, and then start to not only love fundraising, but start to see opportunity for partnership everywhere. So it really shifted my like from an ask to an offer. You know, like that's what I say all the time. I'm like, fundraising is an offer. Like what an incredible opportunity to be giving people, to participate in something meaningful and powerful. And I think we take that for granted a lot mm. in the nonprofit sector because our work is there. We don't realize that people who aren't in this space, breathing this space 24-7 could actually really like ways to get involved, like giving. And so with my course, it's called Power Partners Formula. It's all about how do you build win-win relationships with the yeah. right donors? So moving away from that, like what wealthy people do your board members know <laughs> to like who is aligned with like what you are trying to do and how do you talk to them from that framework essentially mm-hmm. and so i think for corporate partners in particular you know one of the reasons i've been so successful there and why i think i keep getting pinned there is because i really recommend that organization work with like marketing and PR and brand departments, not like, it's like the corporate social responsibility. Like, I don't know why you're all locked eyes on there. Like it's going to be a lot harder, man. But like, if you can have brand alignment, there's a totally different way to talk to companies and work with them. And anyway, so that's why I think I keep getting pinned there. But like, when I think about, And everything within all of my work, both when I work one-on-one with clients and for folks who are inside my course Mm. is sort of interweaving executive coaching with fundraising, consulting, So Mm -hmm. I I, and strategy. So like before, you know, part two of my course is called Effective Engagement. Mm -hmm. And right before I'm having them like click send on emails, there's a coaching module about, okay, when you're getting ready to press send, here's what you're gonna hear in your head. What if they're mad at me if I (laughs) ask them for more money? What if they don't give at all? because, uh-huh. because I asked them to increase their gift. What uh-huh. if they don't like me because blank, what if I'm never invited to parties anymore? Cause people think all I do is talk about my nonprofit. Like, yeah. and, and I show them how to address each type of that thought. Cause there are like four primary types of chatter that we hear and there's different strategies for each. So that's like a big, I don't know what what you think as I'm sharing this, but that just sort of gives you kind of the framework of my work. I love what you're saying,
1: Mallory, and I am so committed to having not only a healthy mindset for myself, but also to bring that to my clients. And I feel like that's one of my superpowers is talking about how are you thinking about your approach? And then how are you inviting your donors or your volunteers, your constituents to also join you on a journey that's positive, constructive, and strategic? So tell me more about what do you mean the four Did you call them the four chatters or what do you, how do you think about mentality (laughs) around that limiting belief system that, that we can get stuck into?
0: So when I work with my clients, I really focus on there are four primary types of thoughts that come up when we're like leaning into vulnerability or we're getting triggered into vulnerability, right? Like right before we cold call or we send an email or we're going into a donor meeting. So I call them the Gales. And this comes from my training as an IPEC certified coach. So, and I'll explain each of them, but G is gremlin. A is assumption. I is interpretation, and L is limiting belief. So I'll start from the bottom and work my way up because that kind of goes in order of strength in terms of like the impact that these stories have on us, right? So a limiting belief is like a societal norm that we've accepted to be true, right? That may or may not be actually grounded in truth, but we are all sort of accepting it to be true. And the great story I love about this that I always totally botch is the first guy who ran the a mile faster than four. Minutes, Like for years and years, everyone just accepted that it was physically impossible to run a mile faster than that. But after the first person broke that record, it was like person after person after person could all of a sudden do it. So these limiting beliefs have a lot more strength than we realize and I think like they play out in you know philanthropy and fundraising and giving things like you know donors don't want to give to operating costs mm. or you know right like we need that 100% model oh, or yeah like those are some of the limiting beliefs that we've accepted from maybe some historical information or something that you know worked many years ago and so we aren't adjusting the way that we inside the sector talk about giving to our employees and if we're not going to talk about it differently how can we ever expect our funders to talk about it differently but we've kind of adopted this limiting belief around we need to keep overhead as low as possible we need to get volunteers to do as much as possible. Mm. And I really think we all need to start challenging those limiting beliefs. Because if we're going to solve the biggest problems of our time, we need yeah. to pay people, we yeah. need to hire good people, you know, we, any, yeah. all those things, yeah, right? All those things. So that's limiting beliefs. And a strategy, if you feel that coming up for you is to just like, one, bring awareness to it. Be like, okay, like this thing just popped in my head that I'm like adopting as truth, but is it really true? Yeah. And like, is there data to support even that it might not be true? All you need is just that like curiosity of like, it might not be true mm. to move out of kind of the black and white thinking that limiting beliefs impose on us, which is like, this is this or this, right? But even bringing in just a little bit of curiosity helps us start to be like, okay, what else actually might be possible?
1: Yeah, I love it. Yeah. It's so helpful. In fact, my flowers are propped up on the latest book that I've been reading called Think Again by Adam Grant. And I've been talking about it a lot on social media. Basically, it's it's exactly what you're talking about. It's like, what had we thought was true? And how are we second, you know, thinking about it again mm-hmm. and r- trying to approach every challenge with that discovery mindset mm-hmm. of a scientist. Mm-hmm. So cool. I love it. So what's number three? Interpretation.
0: Yeah, so I, yeah, so I is interpretation. I love this one for fundraisers because interpretation is basically the the way we interpret something that's happened and we draw meaning from it, right? Okay. So we've all like been in that donor meeting where the person is like stone face and we're like, oh my God, they hate me. Like they're not going to give to my organization. Like why am I even here? And I will tell you like, this was the first date with my husband was like, (laughs) I was totally thinking about dating and (laughs) I was like, yeah, I feel like my therapist and I just (laughs) talked about this exact scenario. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, oh, he, He's not into me, likes not even laughing. He's not even engaging, right? And I was creating all these stories. And we do this with our donors all the time. The amount of times I've had clients tell me they didn't follow up with a donor because they didn't respond to them in 48 hours, 72 hours. That is a complete story that we have made up based on somebody else's behavior that we have no actual information around, right? right? But because of our fears, and we do this in so many different ways. I mean, I've done this when like somebody ghosted me on Craigslist, right? And I like made up a whole story about like, why did they say they were going to pick this thing up? And, you know, we do this so much in our lives. And some of my recommendations around interpretations, again, like awareness is always Always the first step. So, like, recognizing, like, okay, I've created an entire story around this thing. I might be like having an interpretation right now that might be sort of what's controlling this like conversation in my mind. And then to start, this is another one where curiosity and asking some questions can be really helpful. And one of the things I have my clients do a lot is like when they're so certain about, no, it's definitely this, like, it's Mm -hmm. definitely that the donor does not want to work with us anymore. I'm like, okay, write the whole story out. Like get a piece of paper, write that whole story on one side. Mm -hmm. And then on the opposite side of the page, I just want you to write, I know you don't believe it right now, but Mm -hmm. I just want you to write an exact opposite story. Mm -hmm. Like I want you to write the exact opposite story. And even just that helps them see that there actually is another perspective to this thing Mm -hmm. that again, we've decided is certain that we, without any actual real data, Another thing that can be really helpful with that type of narrative is like, okay, if a friend came to you right now with the same problem, what would you tell them, right? Mm-hmm. That helps pull us back from like being the one in the middle of the challenge to like, we're, we are so much more capable of problem solving with the people we love than we are with ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with these interpretations that we latch onto and just don't let go of. Mm -hmm.
1: And it sounds like, I mean, these last two are extremely tied to confidence, right? So how do you balance that out? Are the next two also, do you suppose those are tied to confidence as well?
0: I think all of them are. They just have some, so maybe we talk about that after I explain the other two. Okay, let's do the
1: other two. And then let's go into like the confidence element of like the human behavior and like the experience of, you know, you're trying to do your job, but also you're a human. Totally. Totally. So, okay. So let's, let's talk about assumptions.
0: So assumptions are believing that because something happened before, it's going to happen again, right? So we're like, okay, last time that donor didn't give during the paddle pledge. So we're going to give no attention to them this year at the event, right? We do this all the time, actually, based on like donor reports and donor behavior. And I actually think it's a big reason, like if we remove some of the assumptions we're making, I think we'd actually all do a lot better on donor retention in Mm. general, but that's a whole other thing thing. Yeah. So, but all of the data is different, right? Like all of the data is different. And yet we think people are just going to repeat their behavior over and over again. Right. Yeah. So the big, the big strategy here is just to ask yourself, like what data has changed since the last time that I saw that person or that institution do that thing, right. Mm-hmm. Has anything changed since that time? Right. Right. Probably. Oh,
1: yes. I mean, you could probably even go the opposite. You could assume that somebody's going to give because they always have and take it for granted. You're not doing the thing that we see the most often is we don't do a lot of stewardship. Totally. Right. So yeah. we have a ton of like solic- or cultivation, maybe solicitation, but then are we actually
0: stewarding? So that's totally. another
1: assumption. Exactly.
0: Okay. Yeah. Such a good point. It happens on both sides, of course. So yeah. what's the strategy? Because I
1: like the, that you're adding not only the mentality, but an, an approach. So mm-hmm. what's your approach or a strategy for adjusting your assumptions?
0: Yeah. So to really think about, okay, what was the data that led to the behavior okay. last time? And if you're feeling blocked by trying the thing again, because you're making that assumption, then it's to pull in like what data is different. Like Mm -hmm. now that might actually change the result being different. But like, I love that you brought up the example of the alternative, right? Which is that if you are trying to get someone to repeat a behavior, you need to incorporate the data that helped them do that behavior in the first place. So if you were cultivating a donor by reaching out to them every month, then they gave that gift and then you stop engaging with them. Why would we assume they're going to behave the same way? Your behavior has totally changed, right? So that's like on the flip side, like either use the data to help you recognize that everything's changed. So you can't make an assumption about how they're going to behave. And if you do want to replicate the behavior, then what were you doing that helped achieve that goal in the first place?
1: I love that. I was just sitting, so I sit on the board of build and we were just in an executive committee conversation yesterday where they had a tremendously successful connection with a corporate donor Mm. and they co-created this opportunity. It was a seven figure opportunity and they brought this up and and I just loved what they were saying in that (laughs) we're going to pause and document what strategies did we deploy to activate this partnership and mm-hmm. what made it so special and how can we replicate it? And then the next comment that we talked about in the meeting was, and what was in it for them that was so compelling? So how can you actually build both both of those strategies for the nonprofit to document what worked well, and then for the nonprofit to also document how did the corporate partner see that as a benefit and asking for their supportive thoughts mm-hmm. on that as well so that we're you know, we're not just saying, well, of course, like I assume that they gave to us because they love our mission because actually, you know, it's, I mean, I'm sure that's part of it. Right. But the number one reason why people give is because of the person who asked. So perhaps there is influence there, or what is it about your mission that they did love? You know, a lot of missions have two to five primary ways of delivering service or impact. So is it that they are changing the way we're educating? Is it that we're reaching more kids? Is it that the model has adjusted? Is it thinking smarter, not harder. Like there are a lot of things that my motivated donor. So don't assume that they're giving just because they love your mission. Like, what does that mean? Go mm-hmm. two to five steps deeper. Like what is your mission? Mm-hmm. What part of your mission do they love? And who was the one who approached them and how mm-hmm. did you cultivate them or steward them? So cool. Okay. I'm done with assumptions. Love that. <laughs> Anything else to add for that? Or should we move well, on to the Gremlin.
0: Let's just flag that that piece that you just said about the win-win relationship with the corporate yeah. partner and tracking the reason why someone gave, like what really hooked them. When we talk about confidence, let's yeah. go back there because I okay. think that's actually a big strategy for feeling more confident when you're working working with funders. But yeah, I'll just say I'm going to say Gremlin quickly. Okay. Even though it's actually the biggest one, but because it is so personal and it's so deep and we don't have five hours, (laughs) I'll just, I'll just graze over it a little bit, which is like the gremlin is our like self-critic, right? It's like that voice that we hear in our head that is cutting us down. That is essentially trying to protect us, right? It's more Mm -hmm. of our like primal brain that Mm -hmm. came, that was formed to keep us safe, to keep us alive. But now in the current world, it has no idea how to actually tell when something is really at stake, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I mean, I hear fundraisers and especially new fundraisers say all the time that like asking for big gifts and you're going to be like, wow, is she exaggerating? But I'm not, that they feel like they might die. Like their level of fear, right, is so... Humongous, yeah, and so that's this that's the gremlin, that's that biological instinct to protect you from taking any risk where you could be rejected or shamed or hurt, even if that percentage is less than one percent. Right. The gremlin still goes on fire, right? It's fire still activated. Fight. yeah, yeah, survival, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll give you kind of like a few strategies around the gremlin, even though this is a really big and really personal piece. But like the number one is again, awareness, like starting to hear that voice and recognize that it's not you, right? Like I think that's starting to separate. I even like encourage my clients to name it so that they can kind of start a dialogue and like even personify it a little bit. Mm -hmm. I had a client who like, said it was like a military dad who was like yeah. always yelling at her about you know not being good enough but by creating that personification of that voice she was really able to separate her identity from it and then that helps us separate truth from it because sometimes mm. i think when we don't notice it Or like, sometimes people have kind of rolled their eyes at me when I'm like, yeah, you're like talking to yourself all the time. And they're like, oh my God, she's talking about talking to myself. And I'm like, yes, you are constantly talking to yourself. And it's just about what is that conversation and how do you take some more control over it? Mm. And something I say a lot, like once you have identified and personified that voice is just like pass the mic, you know, like I'll say to my clients all the time, like who gave your self-critic, the microphone in this situation? And like, do you want them to have it right now? Or what's the actual, who do you want to make this decision?
1: Love it. Love it. (laughs) My dad says, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're all of a sudden thinking about the millions of things, then I, you know, I would say, oh, I had a bad night sleeping. I was just thinking, he's like, oh, the committee was holding a meeting last night. (laughs) I was cracking up. It's like, you know, that's their favorite time to meet, the middle of the night. I'm like, I know. And they wouldn't. Stop, you know, one had to get to the other. And and he just, and then we make like a good joke of it because I feel like that's the reality is we all have things that haunt us. And whether it's at work or at home or personal, and whether you've done a lot of self-work or you haven't, there's still like remnants of things that you sound bites you hear in a day, or something that might come up from a past experience that might be triggered. And now more than ever, I think it's really cool that we're talking about behavioral health and therapy and. Consulting and coaching a lot more freely than ever before. And we need it. We need mm-hmm. it. Like our country and our world has gone through so much trauma over time. But in particular, right now, I think we're all putting a microscopic lens on the traumas and the pains. And I think we're all processing that at different rates. And it comes into our work. You know, some of the work I've been doing with my clients over the last year or so, we hold a space during our weekly meetings to just express, you know, how are you feeling and mm-hmm. what's going on for you right now? Because if you don't have an intimate conversation with yourself and you don't have a space held, then it's hard to really progress. So having a space and a shared trusted space, even if it is a workspace, you know, you have to be careful about that, of course. But I just think it's really cool that some organizations do have space and that you're sharing all of this with us, Mallory. I'm loving it and eating right up because it's <laughs> it's just so important to, to just be aware. And even for those of us who are super confident and have done a ton of self-work, this stuff does still percolate.
0: Oh my gosh. And with fundraising in particular, like the thing that I feel like I've seen Mm -hmm. is that, and maybe this will lead to your, the question about confidence. Yeah. One of the things I feel like I've seen is all these really empowered embodied individuals yeah. Yeah. who, you know, come up through the program route or, you know, come from a kind of different space in their organization. I've watched them deliver keynote addresses or yeah. talk on this podcast. And the moment that they are being asked to ask people for money, yeah. it like all shuts down.
1: Yeah,
0: And so you like, I love what you said about And, you know, the gremlin, even all the work you could possibly do, it's never going to go completely away. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about, that's why I talk about passing the mic or turning the dial down, you know, know. like turn that dial down, Mm -hmm. like, you know, just about spending less time Mm -hmm. in that looping, you know, whether it's a shame spiral a perfectionist spiral, you know, wherever those things are. And so when I think about confidence, you know, one thing I just want to say is one of the reasons why I think fundraisers don't integrate this type of work into their fundraising enough is because they're like, yeah, I'm a confident person. Mm. And so then when fundraising doesn't feel good for them, they're like, I must be doing it wrong, right? Mm. Because like in this other area of my life, I do feel totally confident, but I don't in fundraising. So maybe that's just like not for me. Or maybe, you know, we watch development folks transition from place to place to place so often, Mm -hmm. right? The turnover rate being so high. Mm -hmm. And part of me wonders, is it because they think they're going to fundamentally feel differently about fundraising somewhere else? And then I think they're surprised or disappointed. And this was my story too. So like, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying it like, you know, I mean, this is why I discovered that all of this was because this was what was true for me. And so I think the thing about confidence or, or really any emotion is what are the. Beliefs, what are the thoughts that are driving that emotion? Mm. And how are those showing up in whatever moment it is that you're in? Mm -hmm. So, the reason why sometimes we can be confident in one setting and not another is because we hold different beliefs and thoughts Mm -hmm. about what that moment means, Mm -hmm. right? And like who we're going to be in that moment. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the thoughts and beliefs that come up around fundraising include tons of stigma around the nonprofit sector, a lot of money beliefs that are really ingrained in capitalism, white gotcha. supremacy, patriarchy, all of these things, we are holding them. Mm. We, and if we don't process them in relation to our fundraising, our own money beliefs, then they are what are driving that discomfort that's ultimately making us not feel confident.
1: Oh, I love that so much. And you've got to listen to Jen Risher. She and I did an interview, either listen to that podcast or read her book, but it's called We've Got Talk, and it's memoirs about wealth. And so she talks about how she was an average American who came into tremendous wealth and what that change has been like for her. Mm-hmm and how important she believes it is that we just break down the barrier of talking about money. And we really take the power out of money and put it into what it is. That's a currency. And then it's all of the Feelings that go that are tied to it, and that we don't want to talk about money, right? So, even just talking about our salaries, I love that nowadays there are a lot of campaigns getting people to open up the books and say, mm-hmm. Let's talk about salaries, let's talk about parity, in particular for women, and let's women talk to other women about salaries. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes with fundraising as well. And something that I've seen as a mindset that can shift and make a tremendous impact or change on a fundraiser is when they really. T- truly start believing that I am not asking for money for myself, which we all know, right? But mm-hmm. it's actually that their job is usually tied to it. So it sort of is, right? Mm-hmm. So like if they've got their KPIs, their key performance indicators of you know having raised a certain number of dollars and having brought in a certain new number of individual donors and a certain number of corporate donors, whatever it might be, their metrics... If mm-hmm. their metrics are tied to a successful solicitation, then that money really is in a way going towards them mm-hmm. and in a subconscious and subtextual way. And so I think it's really important for our nonprofits to take that KPI away. And let's talk mm-hmm. about like, how are we having transformational conversations? Are we building network? How are we expanding our ways of engagement, like volunteering mm-hmm. board members? And then how does that bring in funds. And then I think it's important for the fundraiser to also see that and to see them as providing critical solutions to the problems of society and having the funds be a conduit or a way towards making that happen. So it's a shared goal rather than, you know, would you please give us the money? Right? So Mm -hmm. that's like the basic level of fundraising that Mm -hmm. I think even the most sophisticated fundraisers get tied up into.
0: Totally. I mean, I, I love everything you just said. And I'll say like inside my course, you know, people always ask like how old are the people who are fun? You know, are the fundraisers, new fundraisers or veteran Uh fundraisers? And I'm like, it's, it's everyone because it's either rewiring their old beliefs about what has been feeling so uncomfortable for so many years, or it's helping them start with a new set of beliefs. Right. And there was something you said, you know, some kind of, anecdote I give a lot that has nothing to do with fundraising is that I was talking to a group of students and parents about test anxiety a number of years Mm. ago. And I said to the room, I was like, you know, chemistry is not stressful. And everyone was sort of like, of course it is. Like, that's why we're here. And I was like, no, like chemistry is just chemistry, right? Like some people love chemistry. Some people hate chemistry. What's stressful are are the thoughts and beliefs you have about chemistry. I'm bad at science. So I'm going to be bad at chemistry. I Mm -hmm. did poorly on the Last test. So I'm going to do poorly on this test. The teacher likes Johnny so much more than me. And those are the things that make chemistry stressful. And the exact same thing is true for fundraising. Mm. So if your fundraising is not stressful, you know, and before everyone just like hangs this up, like that's <laughs> the truth. Fundraising yeah. is just fundraising, it's just the it's just a job. Yep. It's just a job. What's stressful are the thoughts and beliefs that you yeah. hold about fundraising. Yeah. And one of the really fundamental ones that I was telling you you know, a bit before about that changed for me when I started to really understand this relationship between our thoughts and our beliefs and how we feel was that I started to recognize that I did feel like or believe that I was begging people, asking yeah. people to give their hard-earned money to me when they didn't want to, right? that was like the underlying belief Mm -hmm. that I was somehow like guilting people into giving Mm -hmm. me their money when they didn't really want to. And, and so of course, if that is your belief, there is no way fundraising is ever going to feel good. Like if you hold that belief, it will never feel good. But for me, what really shifted was like, wow, inviting people to give to something meaningful and powerful and change oriented is such an offer and such Mm. an opportunity. And, you know, like I was saying to you before, I think in the nonprofit sector, we lose sight of this a lot because we get to have mission driven lives being mm-hmm. surrounded by good work all the time and filled up by the stories of of what we do but there are so many people out there who want the opportunity mm-hmm. for those experiences and giving and philanthropy that is a really significant way for them to get that especially for folks who don't have the time or capacity to give their time yeah. and so how dare we not give the opportunity to yeah. everyone to have what we have, which is yeah. this incredibly meaningful, incredibly mission-oriented life.
1: Yes. I
0: love that. And,
1: and I want to just pause and say that I I said it's just a job, but I want to take that back because it really is so much more than a job. And everything you said proves that as well. So I just wanted to say like, that was a bit of a gaffe because... Well yes it is a job it is like you said a lot of people do believe this is a life mission and that it's an opportunity to fulfill their mission and their values and i think that you know the joy of giving or talking about the impact and then the money is so secondary that strategy that's been shared you know pretty commonly is it's truly it's true and and i think that what we might benefit from as fundraisers is thinking about it's not a zero-sum game and it's not a limited pot of who might give, right? So I think that what's happening is we start getting into this scarcity model that triggers all of those four chatters. Mm -hmm. So it might be along the lines of, well, I've I've got to convince them of this. I've got to prove my case better. I think it's what you're saying. And that for those who have the capacity to give money, but they don't have the capacity to give time or they haven't studied it, they don't have the expertise. They are given a gift of being invited in. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's actually, if you start thinking of yourself as being generous by asking for money, Mm -hmm. it changes everything, right? So you're, you're saying, no, come into our circle, come into our tent, come and learn about what we're doing. And, you know, We've got all these experts in place. We've got a lot of donors that are helping us to fund it. We need more funding because we're a nonprofit. That's our whole business model is to not make a profit. Even though we want our people to be cared for, we want them to have decent salaries. We're just not paying out shareholders. That's Mm -hmm. the misconception about nonprofits. Mm -hmm. It's not that we're not going to try to run an effective business model. It's just that we're not sending out money to random people, Mm -hmm. right? It's that we're giving it to our beneficiaries, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So I like what you're saying about, you know, just really offering the opportunity. If somebody is not interested, just close that door and move on to another one. And like, quit that limiting belief that there aren't enough prospects out there.
0: No, you're so right. And it, and it's also the gales that lead us there, right? It's right. like, that's where we start to make assumptions about who the right people are, who the right relationships are and, right. you know, and, to what you were saying before, I think another way to really help you kind of build that confidence in the ask and in the relationship mm. building is what you were sharing about build with the corporate partnership. Yeah. Is yeah.
1: Thanks for looking back. Part, yeah.
0: Like part of what is so, you know, inside power partners, this is sort of why I talk about it, it's like. What's the win-win? Because Mm -hmm. if you feel like you're really going to a funder, a foundation, a corporate partner, an individual with the language of the win-win of what Mm. they care about, then you're even further kind of solidified in that offering mindset. And a big part of what I say to people is like, look, when you're outreaching to people, and this isn't about being donor-centric in the old school way, but it's about putting on, like I use the term lenses a lot, to see the problems through the eyes of your partner, right? And to say, hey, so-and-so company, I see you over there really invested in changing blank. It's really clear to us because of this campaign that you're doing with so-and-so that you want to make a big impact on blank community, Over here at our organization, we are working towards the same goal. Would you be open to having a conversation about how we can strategically leverage both of our work? Like, think about how different that feels, right? Than like, hey, can you give us a twenty five hundred dollar corporate sponsorship for our event because you should care about what we care about. (laughs)
1: that's cool, Mallory. I love that way of thinking. And I really like the word leverage too. So let's capture that. And if you're listening and you want to pause and rewind, I would say that is a really good modeling to listen to. And if you know anything about me, I just love doing modeling and reframing and mirroring. I think that's how we can start shifting our language, which shifts our behavior, which shifts our belief systems and vice versa, belief systems, behavior, and language. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's a dialogue that we all have within ourselves if we're, you know, trying to bring about higher consciousness in ourselves and in our work. So I want to go back into a little bit of the nitty gritty because what we've gotten into is like really excited and even philosophical conversation. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the tangible way that, like, I was saying, if somebody's not excited, move on to the next one? Mm -hmm. And you were saying, right. And let's not try to typecast our perfect donor. Now, on the other hand, it can be really helpful to build a profile of our ideal prospective donor. What do you do with an organization who's just getting started with either their brand new organization or they've got a new objective? Maybe it's a capital campaign, which is my specialty. What is your thought around how do you, where do you begin and how do you start pivoting your pipeline,
0: which is your list of prospective donors as you move through it? Okay. Okay. So I'm going to think about the best way to articulate this verbally. And then I have okay. a free webinar if folks are like, right. hey, I couldn't catch all that that they can go to. And there's kind of a workbook that can walk them through this. Perfect. But basically, so the place I have people start I've created this thing that I call asset mapping, and it's sort of under this umbrella of funder mapping. I think the number one thing to do is understand first, before you go, you know, you think about kind of your own organization, is to understand the different ways that different types of funders think. So what, like, learn about foundations. What are they looking for? Could you even interview someone you know who works as a program officer at a foundation? Figure out how you can put on the lenses for different types of partners. And for corporate partners in particular, I would really encourage you to think about it from a corporate foundation perspective, from a corporate social responsibility perspective, and from a marketing brand perspective. how you would work with each of those um, entities is actually quite different, mm. right? And then to understand individual donors, what are the, what are the different types of ways that they're going to see your organization or get excited or get engaged? And some of that might be what you were mentioning before, Lindsay, about like, what is the program that drew them in? What was the thing that they got engaged with? Right. So first I have people kind of funder, what funder map? and really understand, okay, like what is the perspective of each of the, these people about, mm-hmm. about our organization? What do we think it probably is? Mm-hmm. And, and then, so that's kind of step one. Step two, so donor decision-making, step one. Step two is what I call asset mapping. And this is where you go into each of your programs and you start to think about what are the assets I have for each of these programs? And those assets go way beyond the programs themselves. So here's like a little example. A client had a dog adoption agency, Mm -hmm. right? A nonprofit. So one of the assets of her full organization, right? Sometimes this is specific to a program. Sometimes it's with the whole organization is that she had all these amazing dog trainers, So that's an asset of the organization that we often don't think about. Thought leaders on your board of directors, asset of an organization. Your list size, right? This isn't maybe for a brand new nonprofit, but what's your email list size? That's an asset of your organization. You know, these are the types of things I think we often don't kind of look at in relationship to how we're going to work with different types of donors, because different types of donors are going to care about different assets. Mm-hmm. So, once you've done this asset mapping for each of your programs in your whole organization, I have people funder match. Mm-hmm. So then they start to say, okay, these types of funders are likely going to be the most interested in these either programs or assets, and I have them kind of create an entire prospect list that breaks things down that way. And there's a few reasons for it. One is because then when they're engaging those donors, they are speaking their language, right? They're Mm -hmm. talking about the assets. They're talking about the donors. They're really meeting them where they're at. And they're really by going through that process also starting to feel empowered about Mm -hmm. what they're offering. So that whole process also helps them see like, wow, like look at how much we have to offer. right? Right. And then in terms of, Well, okay. So I'm going to give you a quick example before I move to the next phase of this, just about how that kind of process happens. So like take that dog trainer example. Okay. So they have these dog trainers. So what they did was they identified that corporate partners, particularly under kind of brand and marketing, were trying to run campaigns that would help get them in front of more new dog owners. Okay. So they set up a free virtual dog training once a month that was promoted all over the place, and then created engagement strategies for dog businesses right? And started to have corporate conversations about sponsorship of that event, right? So there they are. They have a one-hour Zoom dog training, but that gets promoted to thousands and thousands of people, both people who have adopted through them and way beyond. And the corporate partners are psyched, like they're getting in front of all these people, right? So that's the idea.
1: That's a win-win. I love that.
0: Totally. So that's like the understanding, okay, how would a corporate partner view our organization? What's the asset we have? How does that match with them? And then really leveraging again, that match when you're outreaching Mm -hmm. to them and building that relationship. And it was, it's just really easy actually when you do it that way, because you're solving their, their problem, right? And so that's a big thing. So then the second piece of this, to answer your other question about kind of prospecting and um, where people start in terms of that. So that strategy will start to help you identify a number of prospects, right? In your foundation, in your um, corporate partnership, and then, you know, individuals potentially as well, kind of depending on the age of your organization and that Mm -hmm. pipeline. And so then my recommendation is that you focus. One day a week on one type of funder and one type, one either program or specific asset area. So I'm a really big fan of batching work and a really big fan of you know, I watch fundraisers lose so much time, like creating a sponsorship deck for this donor, for this thing, and then sending this individual donor email and then working on this grant. And they're like, but Mallory, I like batched five hours of fundraising time. And I'm like, you were still super scattered throughout that time. So especially when people are starting out like, okay, so Tuesdays, you're only focused on corporate sponsorship, outreach, focused on this program and you're really working to leverage these assets, right? Like if you could do that each day, you know, take three days a week and kind of start with where do you see the most assets alive, right? What type of funder and the most, like that's what you'll see when you create that whole map is like, wow, this program maps really strongly against these types of funding entities. Let's start there. And then you really focus your time on those. And then one of the strategies that I use with my clients is called five and dive. So I am not a fan of endless prospecting. And I watch prospecting so often lead to paralysis because the scarier thing is outreach right and so mm-hmm. we can we can say we're working on our fundraising all day long if we're working on our really Research. nice search right yeah. or or inside our CRM and yeah. so with five and dive i'm essentially like prospect 5 at a time outreach 5 at a time outreach <laughs> outreach
1: There's- oh five and dive i'm taking that one girl i love that one that's so good <laughs> I'm going to use it on my niece as well and say, we're going to count five and you dive in the water. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. And just that's great. I like that idea of like five prospects at a time, take action. And then, you know, I thought you're actually going to go to something else. I thought you're going to say outreach five times. And then if they haven't responded, Mm -hmm. dive into the next pool or something like that. That's where my brain was going. Because I feel like five is enough. Don't you think for an outreach before you decide?
0: Totally. Yeah, I actually have like, I actually have the, my fourth email template is like, look if this, I don't want to be hounding you. And so if you do not see this alignment here, could you just let me know? Because I also don't want to leave you out of this incredible opportunity because it looks like the alignment is there. So if you're just busy, let me know. I can follow up in two months. And if you never want to hear from me again, just let me know. And I think this is again, where like, where like, if you, If you feel like you're making an offer, then that feels like a really generous thing to give someone a fourth opportunity to follow up with you. Like, you're welcome. (laughs) <laughs> you are
1: welcome. I, that. Melly, that's that's gold. I love it, and I think you know I listen to a lot of. Have you ever heard of Jenna Kutcher? The yes, mm-hmm. yeah, gold digger. Mm-hmm. She's got a fun podcast. I really enjoy that, but she's got a lot of that same technique or approach that you're talking about, and mm-hmm. and I'm hearing just a lot of there are different sectors that it sounds like you pull from that you're adding, you're synthesizing and distilling into this industry, which I really appreciate. And I encourage people to do the same thing. I think it's really important that we get out of our limited scope of our industry, whether you're in fundraising or not, right? So even a lot of the people who are listening are not in fundraising. In fact, I have one of my biggest fans, Jeremiah, there's a little wink out to you. He's not in fundraising. And he's always like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I learn something new every time. And I think that's really cool because I also listen to different, industries giving different approaches. And I think that nonprofits and fundraising sometimes get a little stuck in the ways of like the old, you know, business card and perfection and social services and humble asking and indebtedness, as opposed to the sort of new way of thinking about like what you're saying, right? That, this is an opportunity for us to be change makers. Like when else do you want to make a change? If not today, let's do it. Like here's Mm -hmm. what's happening already. Here's what's needed. Give us some gas. Like let's fuel this thing. Let's go. We'll keep you up to speed the whole way. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's cool. That's exciting. Like the organizations that think of it that way, that's what I get excited by. Mm -hmm. And I think that donors are really, they're the same, they're human, right? So how can they not be excited Mm -hmm. about change and enthusiasm and winning teams and success and
0: Totally. And the one quick thing I'll just say is like the amount of times I can't even count the amount of times that a particularly corporate partner has said to me, thank you so much for talking about this this way, because, you know, I have to go answer to my boss about are like my metrics and what I'm being held accountable to. And the fact that you're creating, you're creating space in this conversation for like, what are my goals? How did this align with our mission? Like, and you're just talking to me from my perspective too. Like now I see like how I can actually bring this to the next level. And, you know, I was on, I did a training recently for hundreds of people. And at Mm. the end, the sponsor came on, the sponsor Mm. of the training. It was for like a nonprofit development group. And he was like, Thank you for saying what you said about corporate partners. He was like, As much as I care about something, if some, like, even if someone brings me something that I'm totally bought in or on, I have to answer to 42 other people. So if you don't help me make that case, I Make can't it do it. Make it easy for me. And I was just like, wow. Like, and you know, he said it in front of this whole group, but I was like, yeah, like what you're saying, everyone is human. And if we don't want to be treated with those old money stories, yeah. then we can't treat our donors that way either.
1: Totally. Totally. Gosh, I've loved this. What else do you want to share with us? I feel like we're over time. I've taken a lot of your time and I could use another two more hours with you minimum. (laughs) Let's go grab a drink. (laughs) Um, Next time, wine. (laughs) Next time, wine. Is there anything else that you want to share along those lines before I ask you my two sort of signature questions?
0: Mm. No, I think, you know, if you, when I was walking through my strategy, if you yes. want that blueprint, definitely go to MalloryErickson.com slash free because my okay. webinar, I kind of break all that down and you'll get the workbook. I know it's a lot to say verbally without slides on a podcast. So I was a little hesitant to overwhelm people with it, but um, well, my listeners are super smart. Okay. (laughs) I just like auditory only probably wouldn't be able to do it. But then, you know, the other thing that I'll just say before I answer those questions is just that I'm here for two reasons. One is to move more money into the nonprofit sector because, like you said, there is not a fixed amount here. And any beliefs about it are our own limiting beliefs. Like this is not a market size. There is no, we can have what size market we want in this sector, depending on how much we inspire and engage people to be a part of it. That's it. So I am here to move more money into this sector. And I'm also here so that fundraisers feel freaking proud yes. of the work that they are doing to be those money movers. Because gosh, when I think about everything you actually Feel on a daily basis, it breaks my heart. Like, you guys are the money movers that are helping us solve the biggest problems of our time. And you should be so proud of being a fundraiser and just thank you for that work. So, now I'll stop and let you ask me those questions. I
1: love that. I'm so happy to hear that too. And, you know, I feel like we do need more fundraisers in the space. I feel like the space is just it's not that sexy to a lot of people. So I feel that what you're sharing is motivational and is inspiring. And I really appreciate you offering all of your free resources and just your time with us today, Mallory. And and just know if you're listening and you're considering a career in fundraising that you can call either of us and we will be your hype women. And we want you in the space. We want talented people in the space and we'll help you negotiate for the right salary so that this can be a good career move for you. Because I really believe in that too. Like I want people to get into the space. I want them to stay in it. I want to stay with, I want them to stay with an organization for three to 30 years. You know, the, every, every 12 to 18 months hopping is like tragic. So, all right. Shout out to recruiting fundraisers (laughs) now, Mallory. So what gives you hope? I mean, you feel like you've given me a lot of hope and inspiration. What else drives you like on a personal level?
0: You know, I just, I feel the narrative changing like not everywhere. And I know that we're still dealing with the stigma and the people diverting their eyes on the street to canvassers and all those things that make us cringe as fundraisers. But I also feel this groundswell of people talking differently and showing up differently and supporting each other differently. And I just believe that we can have this revolution in the sector. Like now is the time as people are talking about capitalism and money and women differently. I mean, when I think about, you know, 75% of the nonprofit sector being women and what that means for development and female empowerment, like Mm. I, and I think this is the time and I feel really hopeful about that.
1: Oh, right on. I feel that, I feel that energy. (laughs) There's one thing that you want to shine some light on since you'll have everybody who's listening. What would it be?
0: So I... If there are donors listening to this. Yes,
1: there are. I've a lot okay. of friends who are donors who've either spoken
0: and are listening. So I I want to shine some light on how grateful I am, and I know so many people are for the donors out there who are proud of paying nonprofit professionals and who are really like want their money to go to everything, to the, yeah. to the programs they believe in, to the people they believe in and who are leveraging their work in the sector as donors, as philanthropists to see the whole ecosystem and the people there too. Mm-hmm. So that's why I want to thank those donors. I think about you every day. <laughs> (laughs)
1: yes, hats off to those donors, whether they're big and small, because I think that that's the other thing too, is everybody who everybody who's listening to this podcast right now, I compel you, I (laughs) recommend for you to give something, just give something, even if it is the same amount as a coffee would cost you, give something and start feeling what it's like to be a donor. And then if you have that tremendous capacity to give, see what that money could go towards so that we're not asking anybody to change their lifestyle, just to actually invest in things that are meaningful to you and changing the way that we all live in this world. So love that Mallory. Thank you. And yes, I couldn't agree more that so much love and appreciation to donors and to friends and volunteers. So this has
0: been fantastic. One more time, where can everybody find you? They can find me at malloryerickson.com or on Instagram is kind of the social platform I hang yep. out the most on, which is just Mallory underscore Erickson underscore coach. And you can find yeah, links to all that on my website too.
1: Yes. And I'll see you on Wednesday at 8am.
0: Yes. Yes. I love that. And oh, the last quick thing I'll say is that, and you'll see this on my website too. The course I've mentioned a few times is called Power partners formula and on the webinar, which is, you know, most of it, 98% of it is free content at the very end. If you stay on, you can hear more about that as well.
1: Awesome. Love it. Mallory, you are wonderful. I'm so glad that you're a good prof. I'm so glad that we've met. And I can't wait to share this with the world. Thank you so thank much.
0: You. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, this was so fun. So thank this you. This was fun, truly.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Creating Community for Good podcast. If you like what you heard, let me know. Send me a message on LinkedIn or write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If you're curious about a topic or you'd like to be a guest, Let's connect. Go to www.creatingcommunityforgood.com. In there, you will see all of the podcast episodes with beautifully written show notes and hyperlinks to everything that we've discussed. Thank you and shine on.
0: With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review, as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.